news, the storm is coming fast, the day will soon be here. When those who are caught unprepared will be the first to fall, that much is clear. Hello and welcome to Physical Attraction, the Tailed Wowkey Specials, where we'll be examining the end of the world, one apocalypse at a time. And survive while there's people crying, people dying everywhere around. Hello, and welcome to this Teot Wauki special of Physical Attraction. If you're listening to us, it means that the world has not yet ended. Let's try and keep it that way. This week we'll be talking about superviruses again, in our episode Supervirus Part 2, The Human Threat. Because while we talked in the last episode about the threat from Ebola and uh, malaria and things like that, there is of course a threat from humans as well. In the process of developing biotechnology, we have the potential to cause a healthcare revolution that would render even antibiotics and old techniques obsolete. For example, imagine a genetically modified virus that could distinguish between cancerous and non-cancerous cells and bolster our own immune systems. But like every new technology, with greater benefits there are also greater risks. The Future of Humanity Institute is concerned with bioengineered viruses, which could self-replicate and spread uncontrollably if they were ever allowed out of the lab, or if they escaped by mistake. Smallpox has been eradicated through vaccination. This disease that killed hundreds of millions of people in the 20th century is no longer transmitted in the wild. And yet, despite orders from the World Health Organization, the US and Russia continue to maintain stockpiles of the smallpox virus. Both sides argue that the viruses are kept for research, in case a pandemic breaks out due to some surviving viruses in nature. It's true that the viruses could remain very infectious for a long time, so there might be some lying around somewhere that could still infect people, but many medical arguments still argue that there's no public health benefit to keeping the smallpox viruses around. The stockpiles that exist may be the most likely sources of any transmission to humans, as occurred in the last reported case of smallpox in the Birmingham outbreak in 1978. Smallpox has been used as a bioweapon since the French and Indian Wars, or even earlier. If any of my fellow Brits are feeling especially patriotic about the Empire, it's important to remember that the British Empire had a deliberate policy of trying to infect Native Americans with smallpox. If one of their soldiers was sick with smallpox, they'd throw their blankets over the encampment and give them to the Native Americans. It was the diseases that infected the New World, as much as the fighting, that really did them in. The Soviet Union, when they were testing a weaponized version of smallpox in the 1970s, unleashed a deadly version of the virus on an island in 1971 that killed three people before it could luckily be contained. I'll say two things on this. The first is, I imagine that if smallpox wasn't so deadly and couldn't be used as a bioweapon, the authorities in the US and Russia, those notoriously peaceful world superpowers, probably wouldn't give a damn if it was destroyed. I mean, if this was some obscure virus that affected fish or something, they're not going to try and keep it in their labs, are they? But the second, far more concerning fact is that the question has almost been made moot by modern technology. Because you don't need a stockpile of smallpox, not anymore. The genetic information of smallpox is out there, available online. In 2017, Canadian scientists recreated an extinct horsepox virus just from the genetic information. They said, we didn't do this because we want to bring horsepox back. We did this to demonstrate that with a small lab, $100,000, 
and a few canny scientists, someone could pretty easily recreate the smallpox virus if they wanted to. Just think about that. Anyone with reasonable resources, a few motivated scientists, a decent laboratory, and a decent amount of money, well, there might no longer be anything stopping them from having a deadly virus like smallpox on their hands, something so potentially fatal that it was kept secret from the public for years and the stockpiles closely guarded. What kind of world do we live in where many individuals can have that kind of power? The scary thing was the scientists said in their report that neither of them were even virus experts. They were just good biotechnologists. At the height of the Cold War, the Soviets were working on some pretty nasty stuff. In 1979, they accidentally released hundreds of spores of weaponized anthrax near Sverdlovsk. The exact death toll will probably never be known, because the KGB descended and suppressed much of the evidence. But well over a hundred people are likely to have died. Chris Impey, in his wonderful book How It Ends, discusses the Soviet weapons programme. He says, quote, What little we know is worrisome enough. For 20 years, Sergei Popov was one of the top scientists at a Siberian research facility, where he worked on genetically altered pathogens. In Project Bonfire, he created plague bacteria that were resistant to 10 types of antibiotics and anthrax modified to resist all vaccines. In the very scary Hunter program, whole genomes of viruses were combined to produce hybrid, untreatable viruses. Interviewed for a 2001 Nova special, he said, quote, Imagine a bacterial agent that contains inside its cells a virus. The virus stays silent until the bacterial cells get treated. So if the bacterial cells get recognised and treated with an antibiotic, there would be a release of the virus. So after the initial bacterial disease is completely cured, there would be a viral disease on top of this. It could be smallpox. It could be Ebola. These were on the list of potential agents. End quote. Evolution through thousands of generations of viruses has created tailor-made weapons that are better at killing humans than most weapons we could dream of designing. And now it seems it's getting to the point where the bioweapon genie could be well and truly out of the bottle. Perhaps one of the few things that has saved us from bioweapons in the past is the fact that, despite humanity's propensity to split into groups that hate each other mindlessly, to viruses, we're all the same. No state, therefore, could unleash this kind of weapon without risking their own destruction. This is, of course, the same tenuous logic that keeps us safe from nuclear weapons. But as we've just established, this technology is about to get widespread enough that, unlike nuclear weapons, it won't just be a state that can concoct this kind of bioweapon. Think about North Korea for a second. Now that's a country where they're dedicated to the production of nuclear weapons and have been pursuing this nuclear program for decades now. Chances are every scientist who shows promise in high school is diverted straight from whatever they want to study towards nuclear physics and forced under quite terrible conditions into making nuclear bombs or, or missiles for the North Korean regime. You have the efforts of a whole government working together and they still struggle to produce nuclear weapons. They still struggle to produce intercontinental ballistic missiles that can deliver them. And there are cases of people in the past who have sought out nuclear weapons, and so far, no nuclear weapons have been obtained by non-state actors. So in terms of massive destruction, a nuclear weapon is actually quite difficult to get your hands on. But as we've just established, 
small companies or individuals with the proper equipment could manage to produce a bioweapon that could be just as deadly. Psychological profiling is not a requirement for people who work at biotechnology firms. Just think about that for a second. Sometimes you need to be psychologically profiled to be a teacher. Sometimes you need to be psychologically profiled to be an airline pilot. Those are both important things. But you could be accessing this technology that could allow you to reproduce bacteria and viruses that could kill millions of people. And yet there's no need for them to test whether you're, you know, insane or not. The world is currently filled with startups looking to leverage our new abilities to their advantage, and regulations will need to keep up with the pace of change. And this is why it's more necessary than ever to have scientists working in government, or at the very least a government that is not sceptical of science. And obviously I can't resist this aside to point out that, at the moment, President Trump does not have an official science advisor. So scenarios where a disgruntled individual releases a bioweapon, or it's accessed by an apocalyptic death cult, or it simply ends up escaping by accident due to improper safety regulations and the rush to harness the power of biotechnology. All of these are scenarios that the Centre for Existential Risk People need to consider. Some have already had precedents. Take the Om Shinrikyo cult in Japan. For those that don't know, this was a death cult in Japan that was bent on triggering the apocalypse, alongside some seriously shady business dealings with the Yakuza and murdering their enemies. They invested a lot of time and effort into making the apocalypse happen. They sought a nuclear bomb from Russia when the Soviet Union collapsed in the 1990s, but alongside this they were working on anthrax, a powerful and deadly bacterial agent that's been used in letter bombs before. Eventually, they stockpiled and released sarin gas into the public subways in a horrific attack in the 1990s. If the attack had been fully successful, thousands of people would have died. In actual fact, a few dozen were still killed, and hundreds were injured. The scenery from the attack is horrific. Bodies on the tube that people were fleeing and stepping over. Om Shinrikyo tried to locate the Ebola virus, and they were luckily unsuccessful. Their biological weapons programs didn't bear fruit. Now, Om Shinrikyo were unusual in a lot of ways, in the sense that they had access to pretty big funding sources. A lot of their members were millionaires and they recruited a lot of highly intelligent and experienced scientists into their particular cult. So it's not the case that any bunch of lunatics with a death wish could potentially access this kind of technology. But it is the case that intelligent people often have resentments. Take someone like Ted Kaczynski. Most of you probably know him as the Unabomber, who sent bombs to various government offices in a reign of terror that lasted for a number of years. He was a highly intelligent but deranged individual who used his mathematical and engineering abilities to manufacture bombs that killed innocent people, as part of his radical political ideology. Now if he was at large today, you'd imagine that he'd be looking at biotechnology. With these sorts of weapons, one person could conceivably lead to the deaths of millions in a way that just isn't possible with nuclear bombs. Now, it's rare that someone like Kaczynski, or a cult as well-funded as Ohm with apocalyptic ambitions, arises. But the point is that it only takes one, and things that have low probability still happen eventually anyway. And if such a cult arose today, you can bet your bottom dollar they'd be looking at biotechnology as the most powerful, most easily accessible weapon to hand. Even the modifications need not be intentional. For example, there was recently a research study that aimed to change mousepox to make mice sterile as a means of pest control. 
but it ended up creating a virus that was fatal even to vaccinated mice, purely by accident. And we'd already talked about the research study that demonstrated they could recreate the extinct horsepox virus with a few hundred thousand dollars. There isn't much technical difference between doing that and recreating smallpox. In five or ten years, maybe all of the secrecy around the US government's smallpox supplies will be rendered ridiculous when any biotech startup can start producing samples of the virus for themselves. Would you really trust the millionaires that exist to handle that power wisely? Would you trust Martin Shkreli, for example, not to hold the world to ransom if he had a smallpox sample? So as bad as the unintentional mistakes in a research project might be, the intentional changes could be far worse. The Soviet research demonstrated that the Ebola virus could be made to spread in an airborne way. An airborne Ebola virus is every health worker's worst nightmare. The biotech revolution, if it turns out to be all it's cracked up to be, is going to be unavoidable. The kind of progress that you just can't afford to miss out on as a civilization. And it's not like we're ever really able to put technologies back in the box if we decide they're too dangerous. From the internet, to nuclear weapons, to guns. Once you've taken that Promethean step, once you've stolen fire from the gods, it's here to stay. And you better make sure your hands don't get burned. So let's be a little bit more specific. There's a lot of hype at the moment around CRISPR. I'm not a biologist, as you know, but I'll try and explain it as best as I can from what I've read. CRISPR stands for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats. They were first discovered in bacteria. While they were sequencing the DNA of some bacteria, reading it to see how it goes, they noticed that some sequences of DNA were palindromic. That means they're the same forward and backwards in the bacteria. It was later discovered that this was actually the self-defence mechanism for the bacteria, kind of like the bacteria's own immune system. When the bacterium was attacked by a virus, it would take a snippet of the virus's DNA and use that snippet to automatically target and destroy future viruses it encountered of the same kind. Kind of like how your local McDonald's has a list of people who are barred and a few of their pictures perhaps pinned up behind the wall. They have discovered that you can use the techniques and the enzymes employed by the bacteria to edit the human genome. You put the bit of DNA that's of interest in as an appropriate CRISPR. A molecule of guide RNA is used, and that tells the enzymes where to go. Then the enzymes act as scissors that snip away part of the DNA. What's more, when the body discovers that DNA is damaged, it attempts to repair and scientists believe that we'll soon be able to control this to introduce whatever kinds of mutations we want. The self-defence mechanism of these bacteria could become the self-defence mechanism of all of humanity. This is the cheapest, most versatile and effective method of editing genomes that has yet been discovered. After all, it builds on natural technology, evolution that's had thousands and millions of years to perfect itself. So of course it might be better than something we could come up with. And it could lead to incredible breakthroughs in medical science. The CRISPR toolkit that allows a well-maintained lab to start genome editing with CRISPR could end up costing as little as $50. In other words, it's far cheaper than anything that came before. For a start, with the ability to edit an individual gene, we can actually figure out precisely what traits each gene controls, which has previously been something you had to try and figure out by statistically analysing the properties of the genomes of the people with the trait you're interested in. So back in the day, for example, you might have to look at a population of people and notice that all of the people with Huntington's disease had the same gene 
and maybe that would indicate that that gene causes Huntington's disease. But it's not conclusive. They might share many genes, and you might need many people to be sure which gene was really causing the fault. Now we can just turn it on and turn it back off again and see what changes. You have the ability to change the gene as a variable in your experiments. I guess it's the difference between watching a master pianist playing a symphony, and from that footage trying to work out what the middle note C sounds like. Now we can just go to the piano and play the note ourselves. Once we have a better understanding of what all these genes are doing, we'll know about the health risks that people can have. And then of course, there's all of the crazy sci-fi aspects. You can edit the human genome. It only starts with removing genetic vulnerabilities and repairing genetic flaws that lead to inherited diseases or defects. By the way, we don't just have to talk about editing human genomes here. This could obviously help to solve our Malthusian crisis by creating strains of wheat and other crops that are invulnerable to diseases. There's a whole world of bizarre consequences to think about. Genetically engineered humans for a start. In the future, will the genetic information that makes up you, or makes up Taylor Swift, end up being a registered trademark? And of course, because we're talking about the apocalypse here, one of the consequences is going to be more ruthless and efficient ways of killing people. So CRISPR needs to be improved before it can be used on humans. Especially in the case of the targeting mechanism. As you can imagine, if it's even slightly off in the bit of DNA that it targets, there could be terrible unintended consequences. But they've already successfully used it on human embryos to remove a gene that causes heart disease. It's been used to completely remove HIV from living cells. They've edited genes to make people less susceptible to cancer. They've edited genes to make superviruses destroy themselves, and to make mosquitoes infertile so they can't spread Zika or malaria. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation are already investing in CRISPR research that might prevent mosquitoes from transmitting malaria, or even driving them to extinction, which scientists think may well be possible with technology that already exists. As if we need a more efficient way to make species go extinct as the human race. So obviously this particular policy has been very controversial. There's a technique called gene drives that might be used. So in normal sexual reproduction, a topic on which I'm obviously an expert, if, say, the mother has a particular gene, then it has a 50% or so chance of being passed on to the offspring, rather than getting the father's copy of the gene instead. Gene drives, which occur naturally but have been imitated, can boost this probability, so that the offspring are biased towards inheriting a gene from a specific parent. In a few generations, then, the majority of individuals in the population might have the gene. We could genetically modify mosquitoes so that a few years down the road, they can't carry the diseases that have proved so fatal to humans. A review of the book Pandemic, which I referenced last week, said that the soundtrack of the human race was really the buzz thwack of a human trying to squash a mosquito, and malaria has been one of the leading causes of death throughout human history. Even today, now that the illness can be treated, it still kills up to a million people every year. It's difficult, then, to underestimate the positive impacts that such a scheme could have if they were genuinely able to cure malaria. But of course, messing around with the genomes of the mosquitoes could have unintended consequences. There's no way of knowing for sure what the long-term impact on the environment and ecosystem might be when we introduce these changes. But the benefits, as ever, are going to drive the science on. Already, some CRISPR-edited mosquitoes have been released into the wild by Google, in the hope that they might stop the spread of the Zika virus. In this particular case, Google claims they're justified, by releasing the mosquitoes in a small area, and noting that they're not native to North America anyway, 
They hoped that any negative effects of this scheme could be limited, but people are debating it. Again, this is going to happen. The benefits are just too tempting. Imagine growing a fruit or vegetable that's ten times more nutritious or resistant to pesticides. Or how about pets that are immune to diseases? Farmyard animals that don't get sick so easily. And through these little, positive, who-could-possibly-object changes, we might end up moving closer and closer towards a genetically engineered future. They have used CRISPR to edit out Huntington's disease, a nasty, acquired genetic condition from mice. And they have even used it to engineer a semi-synthetic form of life, an artificial form of life, by modifying E. coli bacteria. Just as I was writing this, I read a stunning article. Using CRISPR, scientists have successfully encoded a computer virus into human DNA. So what happens here is that the DNA is read by a computer as part of DNA sequencing, and when it reads that, the code that it's reading, in fact, is a computer code, and so it was able to shut down the sequencer and execute a few commands on the computer. I mean, we're talking about the barrier between a human virus and a computer virus starting to become somewhat blurry. DNA, then, is an incredibly efficient mechanism for storing information. You could even use it as a mechanism for storing information that would be better than a lot of USB flash drives at the moment. Could it be possible that in the future, viruses could attack both the biological and the non-biological parts of a cyborg human at the same time? In the rush to exploit all of the possible and wonderful benefits that this technology could give us, there are concerns that it could fall into the wrong hands, or through sheer overenthusiasm or by mistake, we could wreak catastrophe in an attempt to help people. The US Defence Advanced Research Projects Agency, DARPA, who you probably know as the people behind the internet, invested $65 million in a project called Safe Genes, designed to improve the accuracy and safety of CRISPR. So the seven research teams involved will remove engineered genes from environments to return them to natural levels. The whole point is that everything you then do, you're demonstrating that you can reverse it just as easily. Let's hope that all future developments in this exciting but terrifying field are equally well regulated, and that we have some checks and balances to harness the best side of this technology while avoiding the danger. One thing is for sure, whether it's CRISPR or some other technique, the potential upsides, the potential revenue, that can be generated from this technology is going to make it irresistible. It's here to stay, and it will become increasingly normal. I don't think this is necessarily a bad thing, mind. Some upcoming episodes will deal with what's called the technological singularity. That's the name given to a whole set of ideas about what happens when technology, in terms of artificial intelligence and biotechnology, takes over from biology, in terms of natural human intelligence and biological limitations. If you think about it, the story of our species has been one of harnessing technologies to reduce the risks that were once seen as perfectly natural. We harness fire to cook our foods and reduce the possibilities of illness. We harness vaccines to defend against diseases. Diseases, and poisonous food, well they were once seen as an inevitable, natural, albeit tragic part of life. But now we see that the tragedy is that these things can be so easily avoided. Maybe in the future, We'll say the same thing about ageing, about genetic conditions, about genetic imperfections, perhaps even about death itself.
One of the symptoms of ageing is something called telomere shortening. So telomeres are the strands of DNA at the end of a chromosome. They act as little bows that tie up that chromosome and prevent it from fusing with other chromosomes or being damaged. As we age, due to wear and tear, our telomeres naturally get shorter in all of our cells. Now, scientists don't yet know whether this is what causes ageing and cell death, or whether it's just a sign of the age of the cell, and that the ageing comes from somewhere else. But they did note that in some animals that don't seem to age at all, and can live for very long periods of time, the telomeres don't change all that much. Elizabeth Parrish, the CEO of a controversial biotech company, last year claimed, in what would be a revolutionary breakthrough, to have undergone a procedure to re-lengthen her telomeres. They do this using a natural enzyme called telomerase. It's already present in your cells, and it repairs the telomeres. In Parrish's case, it was delivered through her blood. The science here is in the incredibly early stages. We really don't know whether this will have any effect on her ageing or not but early results on mice showed that the mice treated with telomerase had an increase in their average lifespan of 20%. Parrish claims that her treatment resulted in a change in the telomere length, equivalent to 20 years of ageing. But since it had to be done in South America for legal reasons, and the technology is kept under wraps by a small biotech company, we have no idea whether this is true. And even if it is true, we don't yet know what the significance might be. But with the possibilities of reversing ageing, curing diseases, and making even better food crops, the risk with this technology will always be that someone will try to weaponise it. After all, how hard would it be to engineer a truly deadly bioweapon? One of the reasons that the bioweapon possibility is the most threatening is that, in the case of naturally occurring diseases, there is a natural incentive not to kill the host. Look at the common cold, influenza probably one of the most successful viruses in human history. But very few strains have high death rates, allowing one carrier to transmit strains to multiple humans. It's only the types that have recently made the jump to infecting humans. Bird flu, swine flu. Well, they still haven't adapted not to be fatal to humans. This is because the disease relies on person-to-person transmission. If it's killing the carriers, there's a limit to how many people it can spread to before it stops spreading quickly enough. This is not the case in viruses that are transmitted by third parties, like malaria, for example. But of course, if the virus relies on a mosquito or something to transmit it, it can only transmit itself to humans that live in close proximity to that third-party transmitter. Humans can kill the carriers and stop the spread of the virus, and it's far easier to kill a mosquito than it is to kill a virus. But in an interconnected society like the one we have, death tolls like the one seen in the Black Death, one in three, well, they'd easily be enough to destroy the world as we know it. A bioweapon doesn't have the limitations of a disease that has naturally evolved. It doesn't have to worry about killing the host, and it doesn't have to worry about transmitting itself in some ways. For example, you could imagine someone that could create a bioweapon that is specifically tailored to kill humans. Let's say it's a pathogen that's airborne, but doesn't have any really noticeable or fatal symptoms for about a month. That is to say, it's contagious, it's spreading from person to person, before it starts being deadly. That way, it could spread to millions of people before we even realised there was a problem beyond the common cold. That way, it could spread to millions of people before they even realise they're sick. And then, 
when the time is right, it could strike. Even so, though, you might think that there would probably be enough variation in the human population to allow some of us to be immune. So even in the case of something like HIV, which was transmitted to humans, populations have built up immunity, even though we haven't had much time exposed to that virus. So the genetic diversity is out there. Studies have suggested that even the most virulent pathogen probably could only kill uh, about 96% of the human population. Okay, let's be honest, 96%, that's not exactly reassuring, is it? But what about a pathogen that targeted our food crops? They can be far less genetically diverse. If you remember when we were talking about the Malthusian catastrophe, we talked about how the Green Revolution, well, part of what it did was it standardised the crops that were grown across the world. And in fact, the best strains of wheat and rice and so on were selected because they had higher yields. It allowed us to produce more food. But this same green revolution that allowed us to feed our advanced population, well, they might mean that crops like wheat or rice are more vulnerable to viruses or fungal infections than they ever were before. Bioweapons that targeted these crops could wreak havoc on our food supplies. The only really reassuring thing I can think of to say at this point is that while the capacity has been available for many years, no one's seen fit to use it yet except in a couple of isolated incidents, which were luckily involving groups of humans too small to make a major difference. We have made incredible advances in medical technology. For many thousands of years, the only recourse our civilization had when plagues arrived was to pray and to wait for them to burn out. And they would often kill huge swathes of the population. Even in 1919, the Spanish flu was the deadliest pandemic in history. Somewhere between 50 and 100 million people were killed by this one disease, exceeding the death toll in the First World War. The pandemic's nowhere near as notorious as it should be, given how recent it was, and the fact that global transportation, for the first time, meant that many people were killed in countries as far apart as India and the United States. One reason, perhaps, is that while the Spanish flu was going, the First World War was still also going on, so reporting on the pandemic was suppressed to keep the morale higher. Only in neutral countries, such as Spain, governments allow proper reporting to take place, which is why people seem to think the flu originated in Spain, which isn't true. The king of Spain himself, though, along with 500 million other people, were infected by the flu. Its impact was exacerbated by soldiers moving around during the First World War. Indeed, some people think that its origins may have stemmed from unhygienic conditions at the front line. But what's worse, a quirk of the virus meant that what killed people was actually their exaggerated, unhealthy autoimmune response. The body, trying to destroy the pathogen, would destroy itself. This means that the people who died the most often were those with the most robust immune systems, the young and the healthy. Yet now, for the first time, we have genuine hopes and aspirations to take back control. We've eradicated diseases that have killed people for thousands of years. Others, like the bubonic plague, break out only in extreme conditions and can be contained. Only around 100 people a year die from the bubonic plague, thanks to modern medical science and hygiene. That would have been thousands and thousands in years gone by. We're beginning to dream now of curing even the long-term degenerative diseases like cancer and heart disease, and extending the human lifespan in unprecedented ways. I do not want to demonise biologists with what I've said here. 
One day, the work of biotechnologists like this may well extend or save my life and yours. Just as the physicists had their dangerous revolution with nuclear energy and nuclear weapons, we're on the cusp of a similar biological revolution. And it could be great for the human race. But as the lines between biology and technology become more and more blurred, and we see once again that the power of our technology is rapidly outpacing advances in our intellect and our morality, we are reaching yet another dangerous tipping point in human society. These things are irreversible, so it's crucial that we're aware of the risks and make informed decisions. Mass transport and the way we live now, in vast cityscapes, can render the natural threats more dangerous than ever. We could have a future where widespread healthcare renders pandemics a bad dream for our species and our civilization, or one where the pathogens that we've designed prove more deadly than anything nature could come up with. One upside to all the doom and gloom. When I described the Black Death at the start, I noticed that human nature hasn't really changed. And all of the chroniclers who talked about the plague said that people who did somehow manage to survive, well, they were related. After all, they just made it through the end of the world. The man who buried his five sons, Agnolo de Tura, said, quote, The city of Siena seemed almost uninhabited, for almost no one was found in the city. And then, when the pestilence abated, all who survived gave themselves over to pleasures. Monks, priests, nuns and laymen and women all enjoyed themselves, and none worried about spending and gambling. And everyone thought himself rich, because he had escaped and regained the world, and no one knew how to allow himself to do nothing. End quote. So if you do happen to be one of the few survivors, you know, and I make it through as well, let's throw an end-of-the-world survivors party. Drinks are on me. Just don't come if you're feeling unwell. Thanks for listening to this Teotihuacan special of Physical Attraction. You know, I was thinking the other day that if every single one of you tells one of your friends to listen to the show, then my audience doubles overnight. That'd be nice. If you don't fancy doing that, you can always like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, where I'll give you constant updates on what's going on with the new shows, and you can put questions to us on Twitter as well. What do you think is the most threatening of the apocalypses we've covered so far? I'd really love to know what people think about that. Because my ranking is my ranking, but you may beg to differ about a lot of these things. And if you put any questions to me, I'll mention them in the show, so you can get your slice of internet fame, just like everyone else. We'll be back next week. Until then, stay safe. You better make some preparations, there's no time for Our theme music is Get Ready for the Apocalypse by Astrometrics. Do get ready.